0: So good evening, everyone. We're kind of switching things up again. Tonight we're gonna do the Dharma talk and it feels like we're making a lot of little changes of the retreat, you know, waking up a little earlier. We're just keeping you on your toes here, you know, not getting too comfortable. Mm. And it's really sweet. I feel a lot of gratitude in this moment, just that I'm on this retreat. Gratitude for the rain. And also, um, Leila, Mark, Wes, myself and Tija, we all really love each other a lot. So we're just good friends and it's it's very nice to be here with you all and seeing your heartfelt dedication to this practice. It's touching to see commitment to this, it inspires me again and again. So I was trying to think today about what would be very meaningful to share tonight as a teaching. And I want to continue on with a theme that Mark really introduced so beautifully last night on sort of working with difficult states of mind. but particularly, I wanted to talk about compassion and wisdom and how they intersect together and also to talk about compassion as insight as a some way a critical piece um, that helps us on our path to liberation you know I'm like a lot of you when I, I grew up we get told a lot about compassion and when we come to meditation, when we hear about compassion, we really associate it with something outside of ourselves. We think of it, oh, right, I'll give a dollar to the homeless person. There you go. You know, that's compassion. You know, we kind of, we look at it as something external, like, yes, I'm supposed to care about all beings, and I'm trying my best to be nice. Yes, I get that. That's a good thing to do. You know, we have that that level of compassion. I have, um, some good friends who come visit me from Ireland, and I I have this, I really like Irish people, they're they're just funny, and my friend grew up in one of those schools with mean Catholic nuns, you know, (laughs) and a lot of wooden spoons, and a lot of smacking with spoons, she said, and she was talking, reflecting on these teachings of compassion, and she was telling me, she said, the nuns, ah, they would force us to eat these gigantic bowls of oatmeal every day, and... Kids don't really like plain oatmeal that much. It's not a big... It didn't go over that well, but they were forced to eat these giant bowls, and then they would be smacked endlessly in the head and on their hands, and the nuns would say, eat your oatmeal. Don't you know they're starving babies in Africa? And smack them again. Have you no compassion for them? Eat, eat. And you know they would be crying and eating, and this went on for years. So her feelings about compassion was mixed to some degree. Like, LAUGHTER they were my role models, these were nuns, you know, and, and so I don't get it, you know, I'm trying to be a nice person you know, that was kind of her assessment of it but really this quality of compassion that the Buddhas are talking about is much, much deeper than that, it has much more far-reaching effects than that. It's actually insight into compassion as a response to life. And I want to talk about this as a response to our inner life. I want to focus on our inner life because how we respond to our suffering, how we respond to our challenges is critical. Again, it's the analogy I used with sharing about the boats and how we can capsize or we can be upright on the boats, going or we're capsizing. I have really come to see for myself that compassion is the only skillful response anymore to challenges, to the mind that is so confused at times, is so painful at times, the mind that's filled with hatred and sorrow and grief and, and revenge and blame and resentment. You know, how are we to deal with this mind that is so challenging? It's so interesting on retreat how, how you're all sitting here looking very peaceful, Right And inside, for some of you, a lot of you, it's all hells breaking loose in there, right? (laughs) And it's all happening here. There's nothing going on outside, right? Everything is, we're trying, everybody's being cared for, the managers are doing their best, the cooks are doing their best. And all we're trying to do is stay balanced so that we can be present and look at all these challenges. It's really amazing. I think that that's one of the things that is funny when people first come to Spirit Rock. They'll say, I can't wait to go on a retreat, 10 days of peace and relaxation at Spirit Rock. You know, I can't wait to go. And then they often, you know, call me, Oh my God, this is so hard. What is this? Where is my peace? Where is what's going on? This is so challenging at times. and I really understand that. You know when I grew up, I grew up in the Los Angeles area right on the Compton-Long Beach border and it was really difficult. There was a lot of gangs in our neighborhood and, and my father um, he had a very powerful cocaine addiction, and so we were very little, and and my mother was there, and my mother, she was very sad all the time. She had a lot of trauma for her own childhood, dealt a lot of depression, and we lived in this uh, apartment building that maybe six or seven stories and um, there was all kinds of violence going on all around. You know, it was helicopters, and I wasn't even allowed to go outside for the first few years. We just looked out of the windows, overlooking this parking lot, and there was all this drama happening 5 people fighting and screaming, and I don't know, it was just kind of chaotic. And I remember I always said that at a young age, I remember looking at the situation thinking, oh, you know, this is going to be really challenging. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> there's no money here, and, I, and no resources, it seems to be lacking, you know, we were, you know, receiving all kinds of financial aid from this system, and that, you know, office, and this, always going to offices with papers, you know, getting stuff, and and um, I remember thinking, oh, you know, okay, my father, he eventually left, he was just in the grip of just, his addiction. So he was agitated and unhappy. He was terribly unhappy and couldn't really be there for his wife or his children. So he went on his way. Then I looked at my mother and I thought she was so kind but she was very young in her spirit. She was very, I don't think she really knew about how to raise children. I think it sounded like a good idea and then the reality sort of dawned like, oh my god, this is a lot, you know. And I remember thinking at a young age, one, this is going to be challenging when I assess the situation. Not only all that, we were also, you know, there was so much discrimination, you know, we were sort of all the statistics. And I was like, oh, okay, God. And I looked around, and there was no wisdom. That was the thing that struck me, was like, how do we get out of this situation? Where is peace? Where is happiness? Right, there didn't seem to be a lot of love and compassion. It seemed like the situation of not having things and the aggression that I saw right? And there was no ability to cope. Nobody knew how to cope with what they were experiencing. They were acting it out all the time, right? So this person's upset and they go bonk that person or do something. that You know, it was just ongoing and I remember at a certain age I became very saddened by that, thinking how is there... how am I supposed to live like this? And I didn't understand. And so that affected me very deeply On my path, as I got to be older, I began to be very interested in wisdom and compassion. You know, at a very young age, I sought that out. I thought, well, how is there... What is all this? And what is the meaning of this? What is the teaching in this? You know, how how do we deal with the suffering that we face in our lives? We can create more madness. We see this on a huge scale in our world. It's really the inability to be able to deal with grief and sorrow and despair. Nobody knows how to deal with their mind. Recently, in an interview I saw on ABC News with the Dalai Lama, he was asked this brilliant question. He said that interviewer asked him, if there was one thing that you could do to help America that you think would transform America, what would be that one thing? And I thought, oh, that's a good question, right? Yeah, what, one thing. And he said, without a hesitation, he said, I would teach a whole different type of school where the focus is on mind. I would change your whole education system to teach compassion, first and foremost, and how to deal with mind, how to deal with this mind. That's what I would change about your culture. That's what I would change. And I thought, that's really beautiful. right? We don't get a lot of training in this. Most people grow up, if not like my situation, might have been a little dramatic, but we grow up and we don't have role models in wise action, right? How many of us were lucky enough to even have some wisdom around, right? We see people acting out. Not a lot of wisdom there. So when I heard the teachings of the Buddha when I was very young, I went on my first retreat, I was very happy. I felt like, ah, this is it. When I heard about an enlightened being and the potential for freedom, I became very excited by this, that there was actually people out here in this world who have become liberated, who have committed their life to peace. For me, on my first retreat, the Dharma was such profound medicine. I can remember I was in Yaka Valley. It was before this hall was built. And they used to do these Jack Cornfields, who has become my main teacher. He... You should lead these ten day retreats down there, they still do. And they would do ten day retreat for beginners and then they would do a ten day retreat for advanced, like one day later, you know, they would have a, a break in the middle. And I remember I drove down to the retreat, um, and I'd broken up with my boyfriend and I had all my stuff in my car. I didn't even have a place to live. I was getting unemployment. I would got fired from this job and everything was unraveling and I remember driving 10 hours down and I'd been crying the whole way down 10 hours from Northern California to Southern California and my car was covered in Kleenex and Diet Mountain Dew bottles everywhere. And I remember I arrived at the retreat. I had no idea it was even silent all the way. I didn't know anything about it. I just was like I've got to go to this place and I didn't know it was Buddhist even said meditation, and somebody said, you can get instruction there. I thought, oh, great, I learned. I learned how to meditate, because I'd been trying on my own with not a lot of success, right? I was just sitting there thinking about my problems. (laughs) Mostly that's what I called meditation. You might be doing this, some of you, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I remember I drove down there, and I arrived in the registration line, and I had my form, and I was literally about to faint on the table, uh, I was just so exhausted mentally, just so drained by suffering. Oh, my life just seemed like it was unraveling. And I remember Franz. You know Franz. Uh, he's a Qigong teacher, a Qigong master also. Uh, he's German. And he said, Hello, beginner's mind, welcome. And I was like, <laughs> tears just started falling. For I couldn't stop it. Right? And then that 10 days there, in the desert, those of you who have been to that land out in the vast desert and it led to this spaciousness, sort of this emptying out of all this junk and stuff and I was walking the desert in tears and and insight and love and all, all of these feelings over 10 days, just this great shedding happened. But I remember feeling that hearing the teachings of the Buddha was such deep medicine for me Like just knowing the truth, hearing the truth, being reminded of things that I already knew. You know, we are just reminding you of what you know here. And if you notice, we keep saying the same thing in many different ways. Can you be with it? Can you be in the present moment with some kind of compassion? Right? This is what I heard. So there's this great quote um, in the Pali Canon I like this from the... this is supposed to be the words of the Buddha. Just as a capable physician might instantly cure a patient who is in pain and seriously ill, so also dear sir, whatever one hears of the Buddha's Dharma be it a discourse, mixed prose, explanations, or marvelous statements, one's sorrow Lamentation, pain, grief, and despair will vanish. Just as if there were a beautiful pond with a pleasant shore, its waters being clear, agreeable, cool, and transparent. And a man came by, scorched and exhausted by heat, fatigued, parched, and thirsty. And he would step into the pond, bathe and drink, and thus all his plight and fatigue and feverishness are allayed. So also, dear sir, whenever one hears the Buddha's dharma, be it a discourse, mixed prose, explanation, or marvelous statements, all one's plight, fatigue, and feverish burning of the heart are allayed. So that's how I felt. I was, you know, feverish, Fatigued, you know, and I arrived, and it was as if that 10 days I was dead, and life support pumped me back to life, you know, through the teachings and through this process of just sitting and learning how to be with my own suffering, which felt so enormous. It felt like I was carrying the world on my shoulders. Not only the world on my shoulders, but the thousands of worlds on my shoulders, it felt like at times. <clears throat> So, to be able to meet our experience, which is what we have to do moment to moment, we have to show up. One needs a lot of compassion for that. You know, one of the other stories I wanted to share a little bit about was that um, Mm -hmm. this year I spent five months on retreat. I went on February, from February to July. I spent five months in Crestone, Colorado, and I love to do long retreats. I have this very, very powerful yogi side, (laughs) I guess you could say. I'm very much in the world, but then I love to go and practice for long periods. So I went initially to spend five months at a little Tibetan center in the foothills in Crestone, Colorado. And after two months, I decided that the center was a little bit too noisy, and it was only eight yogis could fit there, but they liked to chat during meals. Could you imagine a lot of talking all during the meal time? Uh, and it wasn't a lot, but it was enough to think, well, I, I just need a little more quiet. So I heard about this cabin way up in the mountains. One of the nuns at the center said, well, if you really want to be alone, go in a cabin, right? I thought, ah, cabin, yeah. You know, you read stories about people out in the woods, in the wild, you know. I thought, this is it, me in the wild. But I, I don't know them. I'm, I'm not, I long to be very nature-y, but it's not how I grew up. I grew up on concrete, so it's a little bit like me in nature. I love the idea of it, so I thought, this will be a challenge. So I went to look at the cabin, and I thought, that's it, I'm moving in. Very remote, outhouse, you know, long way from the temple that owned the land. There was a Bhutanese, Zochen master who... They owned hundreds of acres, and their yogis had built cabins way out. So um, I was all set. I had supplies. A caretaker would come up every 10 days and bring me water. And then there was a little family, a couple who owned a tiny little organic market in town. And I went to them, and I told them about my retreat. And they bowed, actually, and said, we'd love to help you. We'll haul up the vegetables for you. Right? And we'll, we'll do that because, you know, may our food help you. They're really into this, you know, helping all the meditators in this little town. So um, so I got all situated and I didn't have, I decided to give up my cell phone. It didn't work there anyway. But I, you know, decided I would really, whatever happened, happened. So I had this sort of fearless mindset when I was moving into the cabin And so, as soon as the caretaker drove down the hill, I can remember it was as if some deep fear. Like he was leaving in the truck going way, you know, on this road. And I was like, way, you know. (laughs) And I felt like at that very moment, I descended into the deepest fear I'd ever known and sadness and sorrow and loneliness. And then I, you know, so I was thinking, okay, this is hard. And I really gave myself a talk that night as I was kind of shaking in the, this cabin, you know. And I lucky I had a little solar panel, so I had a, like a few hours of uh, light at night. And I could hear stuff bouncing around outside, and you know, and there's a lot of bears there. And you know, I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, I can work with this. And I thought to myself, spring, the worst thing that's gonna happen to you is a feeling. That's the worst thing you're gonna have to experience is your feelings. And I tried to derive a lot of strength from that. I said, okay, you can work with feelings. It's just feelings. They arise, they pass. What's the worst feeling you can possibly have, right? Maybe this terror that I was experiencing in that moment, I was like, okay, let's just be with terror, right? And this process of being with difficult emotions went on day, After day, after day, after day, sorrow from the depths of, I don't know, ancient, maybe it's the ancestral sorrow, maybe it's the earth body sorrow started to come, fear, anger, all of these different emotions started to come. And I remember I got overwhelmed after about two weeks, and I decided I was going to be my own teacher for the retreat, so I didn't have anyone to really talk with. I thought, well, I know this practice. i got to do it. I can do this. But after the second week, I got so overwhelmed, and I didn't know what to do. It was just the most painful emotions that one could feel. And so I remember sitting outside, overlooking the sun was starting to set, and I said, "What what do I need? What am I missing here? And the word compassion came in again. And I said, you will only get through this with your best friend, compassion. And I thought, oh, that is it, that is it. And I evoked that. And then I was able to be with what felt at times unbearable. Right? And compassion also had wisdom with it because it would talk to me and it would say, spring, this is impermanent. You know, I would be with anguish and tears would flow and flow. And I think, well, this is a beginning and also has an end. You can be with this and I was able to kind of work with compassion in that way and pretty soon I saw the depths of it. I saw how important it was. I thought this isn't just something that you give to other people. This is actually a way of being. This is alchemy. That love and compassion are powerful. They're not what we think they are. They are probably the most powerful energy on the planet. And I thought all these times when I'd be in my cabin, I would think of His Holiness who would just be bowing to compassion. I would think of all the solitary meditators throughout times. I'd bow to their depths of compassion they must have had. I would think of all the Christian mystics you read about, the Desert Fathers, and they would be building their caves in the sand. And some of them in the books, they'd be howling and screaming, and then someone would go over, and it would just be them with their mind in there. Right, you know that how I just want to howl sometimes, right? It's like all they're just going through, it's all in the mind, right? It's like facing your demons, right? Everything that you've ever tried to hold down, it just arises out of the ethers, right? This dance of all the darkness, all the shadows, all the things we're scared of, right? All the boogeymen come out to play with us, and you can. Respond by fighting, I've seen that. Sometimes I would take out a sword and go, "Da, I'm going to battle you right now. I don't want to feel this," right? And I would tie myself up in the most horrific knots. I mean, it would just be adding, it would be it's the teaching of the second arrow. I was shot with one arrow and then I would shoot 20 more when I would battle. I couldn't actually heal it that way. I was just adding anger onto already sorrow and adding frustration. So I gave up on that technique pretty soon. And then I was back to love again, compassion again. And I kept having to die to that. Like the fighter in me would just be pummeled, right? And you'd be like, oh, again, compassion, right? Wake up, compassion for breakfast, right? Because what's there? Tears would fall. Hmm. Compassion is next. You know? Wendell Berry, my favorite poem by him, to go into the dark is the name of the poem. He writes, to go into the dark with the light is to know the light. To go, to know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. if we're not willing to go into the shadows we'll never let the healing really start. It's impossible. And if you're a fighter like a lot of us are you'll get stuck and you'll capsize again and again. There has to be another way to meet the difficulties that we experience. A wise way. And so another time I remember thinking of the life of the Buddha quite a lot. You know when you're out sitting on the earth and you're alone there's a humility that comes over you, you know. You see your place in the world differently. You know, you feel vulnerable. You know, you're sort of stripping away all the facades that we carry. And because of my childhood, I used to carry a toughness. It's hard to imagine now. But I even used to fight when I was young. Fist fights and pulling girls' hair, and you know, all of that stuff. How you get aggressive when you grow up like that and you see that. So I always had that edge that I kind of liked a little bit. Like, let's not lose my edge. I don't want to get too meditative you know, too... <laughs> you know what we have a fear of losing here? Like, oh, no, who will I be without, you know? I don't want to lose me, you know, that. But it's kind of like an aggression, though. <laughs> it's not really him that serves us, but we like it. Right? We, <laughs> we think it serves us in some way, but actually it becomes the... It becomes a huge hole in the boat. But we just don't see it for a long time. So this way of being, you know, this way of being where we embrace what's difficult, we're able to meet ourselves is key. It's essential. The fighter gets taken down. And we want it to get taken down, actually. Because that energy of war and aggression and anger, what happens is it beats us up to death. It turns on us. We become the object of that. Have you noticed any aggression toward yourself in the mind while you're here? Like self-hatred or some intense judgment? It's like we wake up with this little voice in the head. There's a girl in the Young Adult Retreat that we taught here in uh, August, and she said it's like being in the phone booth with a lunatic with a megaphone, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs>
0: and she was really asking for help, like, get me out. I, I, gotta, I don't know what to do, right? And I was like, we, we can work with this lunatic, and I said, it's important you see this lunatic because this is the force of madness in our world. This is the driving. You're, what you're seeing is the shadow. You're seeing what is the, this energy that everybody is listening to, right? And I, and I tried to work with her with that. And I was encouraging her to be with that and how mindfulness, we help to soften that. But we can't beat up the lunatic, Right, if we start punching or karate kicking or getting at, it, won't, it just gets louder. Right, it gets two megaphones, right, it grows in size. And I said, what happens is over time with mindfulness, we disarm it. We take the megaphone, right, take it down. Then at some point, we're talking to the lunatic. Then at one point, we're embracing the lunatic. We're teaching that lunatic about love and compassion, wisdom. And then it transforms in some way. We can't really fight it. That's not the way. The Buddha's life, as I was saying earlier, the Buddha's life inspired me because you know he had his epic journey of awakening out in the forest and then when he sat under the Bodhi tree He had this final battle that it seems like all beings who really seek enlightenment have to go through. Seems like this dark night of the soul, right? Where so he's sitting under the tree, probably quite peacefully, just resting in meditation, and then all of a sudden Mara comes, right? With all the hatred, right? Trying to kill him. Often that's one of our fears is annihilation. I remember sitting outside under a tree in Creststone going, any second I feel like I could be annihilated, right? Some fear in the mind, like, rises up. And then that didn't work. So then, there was a million other tricks played, right? On lust and power and greed and all these, you know. They say in the mind. And some people ask me. They said, "Was that something he was seeing outside? Is Mar real?" Right? Was he seeing a hundred thousand demons approaching him with weapons? You know, launching fire bombs on him. Was that real? Was? And I always say to myself, my interpretation is that was all in the mind. There was nothing outside. That was the inner battle. You know, this meditation waking up process is a bit like a chess match. You make a move, something makes a move. <laughs> we make a move. <laughs> right? So he won, but he didn't fight. In the end they said he held his hand up and he turned all the weapons into flowers. He just emanated pure metta and equanimity. He was unmovable, just love. There was no need to fight back. It was just love. Like, this is the pure delusion, right? Just love, compassion. So that showed me a good example of how to deal with my own mind, right? The Buddha didn't get up and start bonking things or rage or, you know, slam his fist on the trees and all that, you know, with like stuff I used to do. He just sat there. And offered metta, offered love. You know, I often meet a lot of people and they, they'll tell me that they want to heal. I meet people all over Oakland, run retreats a lot, and they'll say, Well, I really want to heal. And I use this analogy with a couple people today who I saw in interviews. In New England, at the Center Insight Meditation Society, they have all these foxholes. They have a lot of foxes. We have a lot of foxes here, too, but in in New England, there's a lot of foxholes. So it's as if I'm outside one of these foxholes, and I'm saying, come here, little foxy, come out. You know, if you stand there long enough, you can maybe see them, or they may come out or poke their head out or something, right? But it's as if I'm out there holding a baseball bat. Like, come here, little foxy. And the fox is actually quite smart. Right? And like, they see someone with a baseball bat, they're not gonna come out. Our emotions are like that too. Right? We have all these things and we want to move it, and we want to heal, but we're standing there with a baseball bat, going, come on out, come on out, yeah, uh-huh. And then whack, right? Have you noticed that energy with certain emotions? Like, oh, that fear again. Get out my bat, just no. Right? It's this energy of aggression. And so then we don't open. Then we're not able to really let go. So we just have to be, start to look at that. How it is that we really do heal. How it is that the mind really gets liberated. I was touched by a story that I read about a friend forwarded me about the soldiers who are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and how there some, there's a certain percentage of them that are suffering with the most extreme post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, there's a lot of people interested in teaching mindfulness to these soldiers, counseling them. There's a whole, a whole group of people very compassionate about caring for these young men who are coming back, and their lives are changed forever. And they're dealing with something quite serious. if they don't get treated, they often commit suicide, the most extreme cases. And so this was a story about um, a pilot study that they're doing at the University of San Diego that they found has been very helpful. So I read the article. And um, one of the worst things about the soldiers' uh, side effects or one of the issues around post-traumatic stress is their night terrors, their, their nightmares. And they're not even regular nightmares. It just becomes a horror of reacting and they're sweating and crying or anger and they're, you know, even sleepwalking. It becomes really dramatic to the point where they don't want to sleep or they no longer can sleep. And if you don't sleep and you are dealing with psychotic thoughts, imagine that. It doesn't take long before there's a serious, a really serious break um, can happen. You need to have sleep. So they started to train these really um, brilliant dogs to work with the soldiers. And so what the dogs do is they're trained to sit up all night long and hold vigil. So they sit by the bed of the soldier. And when the soldier starts to go into the night terrors, the dog very very um, lovingly goes over and taps, makes a tapping motion on top of their chest, like a rhythmic tapping motion over the heart. And then the soldier can kind of wake up and then when upon waking the dog starts licking their face. Right? It's not so sweet. I know. I was like and they just do that. And then the dog and then the dog helps the soldier again feel they're they're safe, right? Figure out where they are. Oh, okay, I'm in my bed, reorient. And then after a few minutes of kind of petting the dog and interacting with the dog, they can go back to sleep. And I thought, gosh, that's just pure compassion, huh? I was like, if everybody on the planet had a dog to tap them like that, and (laughs) we're freaking out, (laughs) you know, imagine we'd all be able to sleep better. We'd all be like, okay, this is good. So the soldiers have reported, the ones that have received these dogs, I think it was 500 of them initially, they're having huge, huge, um, you know, symptom reduction. And so they're training like thousands more dogs now they're going to put through the program. But you have to find also a special type of dog, right? So even these dogs have some capacity to be attentive, to be mindful, right? And to be looking and then to do the action at the right time. It's amazing, these beings. So I felt like that was such a beautiful display of compassion, So we have to train in this, you know. We have to learn this. This is not something that is innate in all of us. We're so used to aggression. We th- our culture is very aggressive with ourselves. We live in a, an aspect of our culture doesn't want to feel, right? We don't want to. It's problem. It's named a problem to feel, right? It's a, it's a symptom of something gone really wrong if you have feelings, right? So therefore, there's a big quelshings. Stuffing of a lot, repressing of that. So we are going up the stream here. Another side effect of compassion that I love a lot is it is not only does it help you open to your own emotions, but it actually will give you real compassion for others. Because I don't really think that it's honest compassion if you're not able to have it for yourself. I don't know if it's how really uh, powerful it can be for others. It's because I've done so much of my own work with myself and I'm able to get so close to suffering now and other people. You know, I'm able to go right to that, right there, and be like, yes, you know, up close, really touch it, really go with somebody through the depths of something, right? Because I've gone there with myself, and I know the outcome is we'll get through it. Compassion makes you strong, that's what's beautiful about it. It's not the baseball bat that we derive strength from, actually. It's love. And if you think about it, the most powerful people on the planet, just think about the people who really changed our world. They were just filled with love and compassion, right? Their, their love did it. It made a strength, and then that was unwaverable. And I feel like that's the kind of strength we need to wake up. Like, there's something powerful that if we want to say, I will become liberated... We have to draw on something really powerful. We draw on the truth. We draw on the power of the truth in that moment. Yes, I can be with this. I can open to this. The Dalai Lama told this story um, about a few years ago. Some of you may have heard it. I think it's maybe 10 years now. He was in Bodh Gaya giving teachings, great Monlam festival, great Tibetan festival. And um, suddenly he bent over in pain and basically collapsed. And it was a very big deal, obviously, to see His Holiness the Dalai Lama like that. And there was a lot of, um, you know, fear. And they grabbed him and they put him in the back of a car and they started to try to get him to a hospital. But the nearest hospital was a long way away from where they were. And he was in the back seat and he was... Um, Basically, he described being in agony. He had a hole that opened up in his lower intestine, so he actually had to go into an emergency medical, emergency surgery, basically, to repair the hole that had opened. And so he said he was in the back seat going over these bumpy roads, you know, and and driving quite quickly, and he was just in agony. But he's looking out of the window. They're in Bihar, very poor state in India, and he sees a child that's pushing a bicycle, and he describes this child as being half his body. He obviously had polio, and obviously he had nobody to take care of him, just by, he was covered in mud and looked quite sad, and he was crawling, pushing a bicycle almost on the ground. And the Dalai Lama saw him. And in that second, he said his whole heart went out to He started doing compassion practice. You know, like, oh, may you be happy and peaceful. And then he said, at that moment, all my pain was gone. You know, I you mean, guys like that. <laughs> like, all pain gone. And then he was describing the power of compassion, saying that, you know, that there's somehow in himself just doing that was able to alleviate his own his own pain. We're so connected to people. Just tell a little joke. Um, so, this is kind of like a joke that I think is funny in relationship to the insight. Every time I have an insight it's usually about compassion and wisdom. And usually I have an insight into love. I'm like, oh. Yes, just surrender. Right? I've tried everything else. Why don't I just be with it? <laughs> right? It's something like that, right? I'm like, okay, all fighting over, I surrender, I'll just wait this out with a loving, you know, hold myself in compassion. So I always have these insights like that, you know, another level, another level. And then that feels the wisdom part. Right? And the wisdom feels compassion because wisdom tells you this is not who you are, this is impermanent, right? helps you bear it. So the Far Side comic strips, you know how they have a lot of animals, especially cows. I know there's like a lot of cow jokes. So you can't see it from here obviously, but there's these cows grazing out in somewhere like it looks kind of like the spirit rock. There's a lot of cows roaming around them, and then there's a, a farmland down a little bit away from us. So there's these cows and then there's three of them, and one cow lifts up his head, and he says, Hey, wait a minute, everyone. This is grass. We have been eating grass. <laughs> okay, so that was his great liberation, right? Like, we've been, this is what we're doing, right? And this is kind of like what we're waking up to, like, oh, this is what's going on, right? And the other cow looks up, and then they go back down, right? Just <laughs> chomping on the... <laughs> But this one, that was his liberation moment, right? He recognized what was happening. <laughs> That's grass and he's eating it, you know? And this is how I am all the time around this insights into compassion and love. I'm like, oh, yes, this is what they're talking about. This is what they mean. Okay. And when I say they, I mean beings who have managed to free themselves in some way, right? My teachers, your teachers, the teachers, the great teachers. So there's a lot of surrender in this. You have to be willing to surrender yourself a thousand times. You have to be willing to throw yourself on the great fire of love. And it's not easy because that fighter does not want that. <laughs> and that, be- that is the ego in some way. The ego hates compassion. It's kryptonite to the ego right? Because it likes war. It needs a fight. It needs resistance. It needs to be separate, right? This is the ego's function. The ego hates to be one with things. It hates harmony, right? It wants to be out like, like this. No, I'm here. You're there. What can I get? What do I need, right? It doesn't understand interconnectedness. Right, So the more we melt into the truth is the more we melt into a sense of oneness, of interconnectedness. Like we are one with all beings. We are one with this planet. If we don't try to rule it, we are one with that. Right, And so in some way, the ego is interested in dividing and conquering. Right? Those mind states are transformed through compassion. Because compassion says, no, let us be with this. And it's also an aspect of the feminine. You know? There's an aspect of it of a feminine way, a softness with ourselves that we open to. And you could say it's the energy of the great mother archetype on the planet. That there's this mothering energy. I guess I'm talking a lot about the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama is writing a book about his mother and he's really praising her in this book. Right, like ah, oh, the beautiful things my mother has done, you know, like taking care of me, and you know, on and on, and all these beautiful things. But in your worst moment, you know, often we cry out for a mother, even if we didn't have, we had a mother that didn't help us, or we felt hurt by her. That we still long for that. There's still that acceptance of that, right? We still want that. There's still a comfort. You know, I travel a lot in South America. I spend a lot of time in Peru. I have teachers there. I visit. And even the most machismo men, right? The most, when they're upset, they're like, Mary! Right, they'll just be crying, wailing. Mary is what they want, right? Mm-hmm. This, this energy of, because in her, they get compassion. She holds this kind of love and compassion, right? They remember compassion when they see that. Even if they're not conscious of it. It's the way they soften into that. So there's a way that we can balance ourselves in that way. We need both the feminine and the masculine in our system. We can't do it out of balance. We, need, we open with the softness of compassion, but then we're steady with the strength of the masculine. right? We hold steady, we hold visual with the strength of like, I can meet the moment. But we meet it with that softness of love right? And those two together I think are very powerful and I've seen these start to try to balance in myself. So I offer that as a little bit of a, a help and an image. Also just to share with you when I was going through so much sorrow in my cabin, you know, and of course I made it through, right? I got out, I'm happy now, I'm going through life, you know, there's ups and downs, But that was an initiation, my goodness. But it was initiation into love, into like how love, how meeting moments with love alchemizes, transforms. But in some of my worst moments where I couldn't sleep and I felt distraught or I felt sad, I would would put up, I would make a little, I had a little futon mat, little futon mat, and I would push it up against the wall and I'd put all these pillows back there And I would lean into these pillows and I would imagine there were these great bosoms of like the great mother and I would like nestle in. Because I was all alone, right? So I would nestle in and kind of imagine there was these great arms around me, you know. (laughs) And that way I could actually get sleep. You know, I was like in the arms of the great creator of all of this. The is the image of the mother of the Buddhas right? She holds all of that and that's the compassion wisdom. She represents wisdom and compassion. So when you get in a moment that you feel is overwhelming, practice turning toward yourself with holding your own hand. Mark shared some of this last night of just holding your own hand and just Offering love to yourself as if you are seeing someone outside like a small child. So you're afraid. Stop, don't judge it. Don't condemn it. Move toward it. Like, ah, oh, you're suffering. That's how we learn how to love ourselves. We practice. Right? We practice. We practice. We do it again and again, and then it becomes the habit. That's the only way I know how to do it. And I get asked that question a lot. How do I love myself? Where do I start? It's actually we need kind of like a step-by-step guide. But the beauty is you have so many moments here to practice, right? Anytime it's difficult, just turn towards that with a sense of care. So I just want to end with a a story. Some of you may have heard it. It's kind of like a childlike fairy tale. (laughs) It's called the cry for help. Once upon a time, there was an island where all the feelings lived. Happiness, sadness, knowledge, and all others, including love. One day it was announced to the feelings that the island would sink. So all constructed boats and left, except for love. Love was the only one who stayed. Love wanted to hold out until the last possible moment. When the island had almost sunk, Love decided to ask for help. Richness was passing by Love in a grand boat. Love said, richness, can you take me with you? Richness answered, no, I can't. There's a lot of gold and silver in my boat. There's no place for you here, sorry. Love decided to ask Vanity, who was passing by in a beautiful vessel. Vanity, please help me. I can't help you, love. You're all wet. You might damage my boat. Sorry. Sadness was close by to love. Sadness, let me go with you. Oh, love, I'm so sad. I just need to be by myself right now.
1: <laughs>
0: Happiness passed by Love, too, but she was so happy that she didn't hear when Love called again and again and again. (laughs) Suddenly, there was a voice. Come, Love, I will take you. It was an elder. So excited, blessed, and overjoyed, Love went, but he forgot to ask the elder where they were going. When they arrived at dry land, the elder quickly went her own way. Realizing how much was owed to this elder, Love asked Knowledge, another elder, Knowledge, who was it that helped me? It was time, Knowledge answered. Time, asked Love, but why did time help me? Knowledge smiled with deep wisdom and compassion and answered, because only time is capable of understanding how valuable love really is. The end. (laughs) So let's just sit for um, just a couple moments. And just, you can even offer yourself some compassion as we just sit.
1: After that, that beautiful talk, we'll chant a few choruses of "Loka." May the entire world be blessed with happiness. Low. <coughs> Maybe that was too low. <laughs> loka. Ta masta suke no mavantu lo no know but one and sweet lo ka samastham no bhavantu like you really mean it lo
0: So may we dedicate all of this good merit that we have generated today through our prayers, through our practice. May we generate more love and compassion and dedicate it to the welfare and the liberation of all beings. And may we quickly attain Buddhahood on their behalf. Oh, money part my home.